Humor can cover pain, but humor is God reminding us that we can be at pain and have joy. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm here today at St. George's College in Jerusalem speaking with the Reverend Dr. Susan Ackley-Lukens, who is the Associate Dean of St. George's College here in Jerusalem. She also, at least three times a year, goes to the States where she's an alum of Virginia Theological Seminary, holds services actually throughout the States. Dr. Lukens, thank you. Or should I say Reverend Lukens? You can call me Susan. Susan, thank you very much. You're very welcome. How long have you been associated here with St. George's College? So I started coming here three years ago. I was asked to come on a seventh-month assignment to help the, the dean at that time. When I finished, I went back to my missionary work in Tanzania. And then, as life goes unexpectedly, through an additional friendship, they asked me to serve as the mediator between the new administration coming in the old leaving. And as a result of that... This position was created for me, and I have been here full-time since January 2016. Do you find that people are surprised to know that there's not one, not two, but four dioceses here in the area, in the Middle East? I think that people basically are dazed and confused. They don't realize until they come here, and it is a gift to come here, all the faiths that call this their center. So I think it is confusing, but that's the nature of this land. I'd like to go back just a little bit and then come back to your work in Africa and here and start with maybe your first inklings of belief or thinking there might be something to this. Or was it just a gift to you? I guess I've always had faith in my life. Um, My mom is retired now. She was a missionary overseas. I grew up in Brazil. But when I look back on the trajectory of my faith as a child, I just never questioned it. I have my own children, brought them up in the Presbyterian Church. I wouldn't say those years were deep years of faith, but it was just a tradition I was brought up with and my husband as well. However, unfortunately, I became unexpectedly a widow, and through the absolutely awful trajectory of that time of great grief, thank heavens, it brought me indirectly, indirectly back to prayer and begging God, why? Why cancer? Why death? Um, I could barely get out the door, barely get to work. And suddenly, as I think I'm so fortunate, and I think this happens to other people, someone walked back in my life. It was actually my headmaster of my school where I was serving as a dean and pushed me to enroll in a doctorate program at Virginia Theological Seminary. And as a result of that, and being embraced by that community, I became an Episcopalian. I was offered a missionary job to teach at a theological school in Tanzania. Of course, I resisted. And in the end, you fall in love with the people, and I went and stayed with the Wagogo tribe. That's for whom I teach. And didn't go back to my very civilized life as a dean in an American Episcopal day school. 
I took a sabbatical, which was a joke, because I knew I wasn't going to come back. I finished my dissertation, became a doctor, and went to live in Tanzania. My children at that point also were the last was off to college and grown. And end of story, I think um, the beauty of it is I never realized that faith is a journey. And God is always there, but I'm not always listening. And because of that rocky road of life, that's the grace that my faith has taught me. It's about me. God's there. Jesus is there. The prophets are there. I'm not there. And I think during this season of Lent, it's a particular gift that you've walked into the chapel and introduced yourself, because I think the season of Lent reminds us that we always could do a better job of being with God and, and walking how he would like us very much to walk with others. And Lent reminds us it's about us, because God doesn't leave us, we leave him. And uh, that's my walk of faith. And now I'm an Episcopal priest and serving here as a missionary in this job, serving with the Palestinians and Israelis that live in this land. I heard someone say once that no one ever changes after age 21 unless they have a disaster or a spiritual experience. And I'm, maybe you had both. I think so. I think that uh, raising children can and cannot be a spiritual moment. Or a disaster. <laughs> or a disaster. Trust me, any parent that says it was easy, they're not telling you the truth. Forgive me. But um, yes, I definitely think there were moments um, in my young life I, when I... First came back to the United States and went to college. My parents got divorced, and that was a long time ago. In those years, you didn't really talk about divorce, and I lied and just didn't tell people the truth. But when I look back at it now, it was really a gift because I was very desperate to find some civility in my life and something that I could call home and met my husband and had a wonderful marriage as a result of that. But I think that was God. I think that tragedy happens, and for me, I walked away from faith, and then when you allow people back in your life, that's that mystery of of God. So I think you're right. I think that suffering, though we hate it, and it's awful, does allow for a rebirth, whatever that is, but I'm proof to say that that can happen. I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about studying theology and how that is different than just someone opening their scriptures or taking a moment to pray. What did that do for you to prepare you for what you do now? My original college degrees are in business, and I have a master's in education. But studying theology is totally different. It's not one and one is two. It's one and one, well, maybe, it depends how you get to two. Or it's 2.5, or it's minus two. And when I first started studying theology for my doctorate, so I jumped from a master's in education and being a teacher and administrator to trying to be walking into a classroom of theologians, and I, I couldn't grasp, but it's, it is God, and it is about Jesus, but it's your interpretation of it plus all those before you and their interpretations. So I think that now, as I, as I look on my study, which is every day, as it should be with all of us, it's that gray area that there is no answer. And there 
is no right way to interpret the scripture. For example, it's Lent. So yesterday we were talking about, in church, about Jesus in the wilderness. Well, oh my gosh, here I am, 15-minute car drive to to the outskirts of Jericho and another 30 minutes, and I'm there in the Wadi Kelt. Just to have that ability to read that story again for the hundredth time and to try to understand the theology about it. But I will say what I have learned in studying faith versus other disciplines, it's about conversation. And sometimes I'm embarrassed um, or I don't have the confidence to talk about what I think the theologians are saying about this piece of scripture. So for me, it's that ability to be humbled and to be open to someone else's opinion to grow my own understanding. So I think it's beautiful, and I think it's wonderful, but it's new. It's a new discipline for me, and it's something that I work on continually. Are there times in your life or particular experiences that you look back and say, that was God working? Or this is the moment where I said, I think you're really there. At least a dozen But I'll tell you, very recently, I was on an airplane, and a woman who had some physical handicaps was trying to get on the plane. They didn't have a wheelchair for her. So anybody, it just happened to be me. I was right next to her. I said, oh, can I help you? And the um, airline people said, well, no, we're waiting for someone to help I didn't have my clergy clothes on, so maybe they would have responded differently. I don't know. But I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to help. My husband, unfortunately, was in a wheelchair, so I, I, I know how to do this and I know it's tricky. And they were so desperate to sort of get the plane loaded. So the long and short of it is she let me help her, and I wheeled her to the front of the plane and I, I'm sure that God would agree with what I did. Was God pushing me? I don't know. But suddenly, I got over that long flight that was ahead of me. I had been upgraded, which I was so thankful for, to finally be able to stretch out my feet and sit in first class. And I just turned to the woman that was standing by the door of the plane and handed her my ticket. I didn't want to embarrass the older woman in the wheelchair. And I just sort of mimicked to her, can you flip? Can you put me in her seat, which is, which, which is in coach, and give her mine. And it was just, it was done. She just looked at me and smiled. There, was n- there were no words at all. It was just this paper exchanging, her reading the message, because I'm standing behind the wheelchair, and, and done. And, and it was done. And this was like 48 hours ago from when I met you. So I think that God... Um, comes in and out of my life, there have been moments in the simplicity of my African life where there's no radio, there's no television, it's books and conversations, that's how you spend your off hours. I think there's so many moments where I've had to stop and really look out, beautiful place where I live there, or look at the lives, the people that come to my cottage, that's God. And now I live in a country, as many of you know, is at war. And there is a great, I don't understand all the parameters of it, but what I do know is there's a huge level of mistrust. I don't want to use the word hatred. I I really do feel it's mistrust. 
And so many times in just encountering people on the street, people I work with, I I work with a local staff and expats, but a local staff on day-to-day basis, where is God? And am I listening to God? And how could this be happening? So um, there's more moments. It will be a book someday, I suppose. But if I didn't have that ability to try really, really hard to see God in these um, horrific moments that happen in this day all the time in, in Jerusalem, I couldn't get up in the morning. You're free to laugh when I ask this question. <laughs> I love humor. It's <laughs> you're, really, really important. <laughs> you're laughing before I ask the question. <laughs> working in the U.S., working in Africa, working here in the Holy Land, is God the same? Yes. I think God, in fact, just recently, uh, we had a group of seminarians here come study from America, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Australia. They came here to the college in January. So they're really serious because they're, you know, theology students. And in the evening, after a long day of traveling together and learning, just a, a very spiritual, deep day, They would either be in the refectory eating together or upstairs in what we call the common room, just laughing. And and it wasn't one joke. Maybe it was to let off steam. And I remember about the fifth night, I went in, and you get very close in our community here. And I joked with them, and I said, I have a, a, a sort of pop quiz for you. Where in... The New Testament or the Old Testament, is there a clear description of laughter? Either Jesus giggling so much that he, that he just has to like walk away and go walk on the water, or Moses saying, I, I can't go any farther. I am laughing so much. I'm tripping in the Sinai. Hold on, everybody. It's not there. And, and maybe that's the quest. And, and so I think that humor can cover pain. But humor is God reminding us that we can be at pain and have joy. That there's suffering, there's challenges beyond I have ever felt. But if you can't find a little giggle inside of you or believe that Jesus is crying with you and laughing with you, how can you get through the day? I mean, you know, we all have our moments of great pain, and I've certainly had them in my life. But it's through that walking of life that you learn to find that laughter again. Um, and, and I really believe that, believe that with all my heart. Where your life is full of so much ritual, because you're serving in the church. Last night I was privileged to go. You were leading Evensong, and I got actually to give a reading, I, which I appreciate you asking me to do. It was lovely to be there with actually a, a few members of the congregation, but sort of a ragtag group of, of tourists and others just gathered there in, in the choir section. So two questions. What do you do personally, your own ritual that, that brings you to God, and a whole separate subject then, what do you get from serving and leading those worship services of the various kinds you do? Well, I'll go with the second question because um, it's been a very unexpected um, challenge and suffering, what I will tell you. So it sort of melts into what my daily ritual is so I can keep my my sanity and remind myself that I'm a creature of God as well. 
So, as I said before, I was serving uh, in Africa and still do have big connections with Tanzania. But when I came here, I was not a priest. And now I have been ordained. It hasn't even been a year. And women here are not recognized as clergy. And I didn't think it would bother me because I've worked here a while and I have rich, wonderful friendships here of great respect on both sides, with locals and with priests that are expats. But when I returned after my ordination, and I was, you just, you're walking on a cloud, you're just so happy, immediately I felt a shunning. And I use that word, that's a very ugly word, and I'm sorry to use it, but it is a shunning, and it's a shunning for my gender. Not for me, Susan, because we all work and we all love each other here, but me because I'm a woman. And now I'm living that out. It's, it's been almost a year, and it hits me every day because my daily practice is when I'm here at the college, I live on a cathedral close, I try to worship at least twice a day in a community. So that's morning prayer. And as Anglicans, we celebrate Eucharist. So it's morning Eucharist and then evening prayer. That sustains me, fulfills me, makes me happy, lets me meditate on what I'm worried about, and at the end of the day, find something to be grateful for. But remember now I'm living through this continual it's a slap in my face to be shunned, and I know they're not shunning me, Susan. They're shunning my gender because that's not part of the world here yet. I think it will be someday. So my daily practice um, is selfish. It's just reminding me that I'm okay with God, and hopefully God's okay with me today, and that also I am so humbled by women who have been shunned or struggled their whole life, because I've not. I've never, ever experienced a no because I was a girl. Never. That's not how I was brought up. Go to college, go make it happen. You know, get married, have children, go make it happen. And wow. And now in this part of life, which is for God, totally, it's not acceptable. So my daily practice is to have quiet time in the morning, which is lovely. It's my time alone. But then I find most sustenance comes from quietly being in a service with others. Here in Jerusalem, I'm not allowed to be a priest, which would be the most humbling and grace-filled gift that I could give to others. But the one thing I can do, which you were there last night, is lead evening prayer. So it's almost like you giving me a piece of pecan pie and vanilla ice cream. I'm like, yes, and I just, I covet when the evening comes because if I'm in the Rhoda, then I can do that one thing. So I'm not sure where others go with their daily practice, but I know for me it's silence, either outside in the garden or in a quiet corner in my house, but then it's also the gift of living near a religious community and praying with them. You brought up an interesting challenge for people of any faith, which is if you find yourself in a position where you love the community, you you follow your beliefs, and yet there is something that doesn't seem right to you, well, then you've got a couple of choices. One is just sit down, shut up, (laughs) don't make waves. The other one is to leave 
Another one is to stay. I think that's a particular faith challenge. Have you seen people have their faith increase by by sticking with the, the answer they don't have yet? Or, or how about you personally? I guess, um, yes, you, you're very right. I could say hogwash. I'm out of here, and I'm going to go back to my home country where they love me and they accept me. For example, last week I was in America, and I was able to celebrate the Eucharist with a community. I cried the whole time. And it was a real problem because then the little piece of bread is wet with my tears and I didn't have any tissue. So to, And I tell you that it was absolutely lovely. It was the biggest gift that could have happened on that day. And it lasted. it's lasting at this moment. So I come back here, and you're right. I could just say, thank you, I love you, I need to go back. But instead, this suffering is on purpose. I really, truly believe that that I've had a good life, I have children, I have grandchildren, I have friends that I would walk across the ocean for. What do I know about suffering in relation to gender specifically? And yet, because my world is much broader than America, not that this doesn't happen in America, I know there's women that have suffered their whole life because of their gender, or men as well. And this is good. This is good that God is making me really suffer to be a priest. And I don't want to let go, but I also believe that you're in a place and you're working, and there always is a time that we're all replaceable. And so when that moment comes, then I will walk on and leave this space for someone else, which I think is the humble and the right thing to do. Um, And in terms of what it does here, I'm very quiet. I never go in the sacristy when there are male priests in there unless I know one of them, and then I'm very polite and asked to come in. Whether I have my collar on or not, I'm very, very careful. But a really wonderful encounter happened a couple months ago. So I serve as an acolyte or I help clean up the cathedral after service and I have my collar because that's one thing I do insist on wearing all the time whether I'm recognized or not. And after the service I'm cleaning up and there were three local Palestinian Christian women sitting in the back, elderly women. And the reason that's important for the story And I don't speak a lot of Arabic, so there's no way we could have spoken what they showed me. So I'm walking back, I'm cleaning, and I come toward them, and, you know, I give them a kiss, a greeting, because I recognize their faces, and they point with their index finger to my collar. Well, you know, I didn't get it, so I just sort of smiled, and then they did it again, and they kept pointing to my collar, and suddenly... I thought they were going to get angry because, remember, I'm used to sort of a a negative approach. And I looked at, and I remember physically kind of drawing back because I wanted to say, oh, I'm so sorry, and I was just going to politely walk away. That isn't what they did. They pointed to my collar, big, huge smile on their faces. And you understand there were no words between us. What did I want to do? Hug them, but I didn't. But in my mind, what went through this was, you know what? Maybe they've wanted to be priests. Maybe they are happy that there is a woman priest in front of them. Who knows? But it was this beautiful just love and affection between us. So I walked away and went about my day. And about a week later, um, 
someone asked me again, I, I'm asked the question actually pretty frequently, how can I, quote, stand to be here? And instead of this woman asking me this, she said, you must be a really great model for the little girls that walk through this cathedral and see a woman and know what the collar means. And, you know, I don't like attention to myself, so I said, oh, I don't think so. I thought about that later, Steve, and you know what? Maybe that's an unspoken gift from God, that God's letting me just be there in my collar and just let it be. My daughter, who is in her mid-30s now, is brilliant, radical. I don't think she could do this. If she saw me here, she'd say, Ma, what's going on? But that's not me, nor is it my daughter. So maybe this is a gift from God, that at this point in my life, I have the patience and the humility just say, okay, this is what it is, and I'm good with it. Well, I should ask you now, whatever kind of service you're in or being here in the Holy Land, what is the most joyful thing about what you do? I think the most joyful thing about what I do, or try to do, maybe, is, and it happens several times, and I'm sorry I don't have my cross on this morning, is when people like yourself... um, stop to talk after evening prayer or sometimes it's during the prayers of evening prayer and you just know by the look on their face or their tears that this beautiful land has had an impact on them. However they define God, however they define Jesus in their life or neither of those things, there's something we call here the fifth gospel and it's living into the theology of the land, and it happens here. It probably happens to everybody, but those people that are able to come through this cathedral, and you just know it happened. They've been to the Sea of Galilee, they've been to Mount Tabor, or they've been um, walking through the Jezreel Valley, and it's those stories that suddenly come. It's like going to a color movie, and you're just like, oh, Oh, that's what was happening. Or go to the Wadi Kelt and say, Jesus, how'd you do this for 40 days? I couldn't do it for 40 days. And it's this beautiful moment when you don't know this person. I didn't know you before last night. But we have this language between us, and it's just, yeah. Yeah. And it's a huge joy. And I just will say that I wear a cross, and I was hurried this morning and didn't have it on, um, given by two pilgrims that... To this day, I don't remember their names, but they were passing through. And long story short, we cried together one night after evening prayer. It was scripture um, in the Galilee when Jesus goes into the boat and calms the water. And his disciples are really frightened. And that was the reading that evening. And I looked down from the altar, and the older gentleman was crying. So at the end of service, I never said anything, and I went over to him, and I just put my hand on top of his hand and didn't say anything for a minute, and then I said, it's just overwhelming, isn't it? And we just know that God is right here. Mary's here. 
Joseph's here, all those stories are here. And then with that conversation, we just start talking about life and how this trip meant a lot to them. And the next day, they came to say goodbye, and they gave me a little gift, which, of course, I refused, but they insisted. And it's a little cross that was made by a prisoner in Belize. And I wear it every day. It's very plain, and it's on a rope. And that is the joy of living here, that you are that I have had the privilege of meeting these people and just for a moment, either in words or in a look or in a hug or in both, their story and what happens here is wonderful, really wonderful. The Reverend Dr. Susan Ackley Lukens, Associate Dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem, I can't thank you enough for sharing your faith with us today. You're so welcome. And the little Arabic I do know is shukran, and I also speak a little bit of Swahili, so that's Asante Sana. It's my pleasure, and I do hope that your gifts of giving faith narratives to others is beyond, beyond any measurable point. It will be a gift. I think people all over the world that struggle, but I think in America we're at a paradigm shift, and I think people are trying to love their neighbor, and I hope you're stories go out there, because we're not alone in this mess and in this joy. So it's my privilege, and you're so kind to come here today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll pay a visit to St. George's Cathedral and learn a bit about the local congregation in Jerusalem. And we'll hear from a panel of listeners discussing some of the ideas brought up by Reverend Lukens. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Welcome to Sunday morning services at St. George's Cathedral in East Jerusalem. The cathedral shares a central square with St. George's College, which is just about 200 yards from the Garden Tomb, near the Damascus Gate, the northernmost gate of the old city of Jerusalem. St. George's was founded by George Francis Popham Blythe, a Church of England cleric. Its mission includes educating clergy and laity from many parts of the world, focusing on pilgrimage, community, study, and reconciliation. A course of study typically lasts 8, 10, or 14 days, and they're open to clergy and laity of all denominations and any faith. You might study the Bible and the land, including archaeology and history, pilgrimage and spirituality, and interfaith Jewish, Christian, and Islamic dialogue. There are services in Arabic for the local Anglican congregation and in English for expats from various countries. And the sermon today is delivered in both languages, one after the other. It's a new experience for many English speakers to sit in a Christian service and hear parishioners saying and singing Allah. But after all, that's simply the Arabic word for God, whatever your religion. Another surprise? Many of the congregants are Arab-Israeli Christians. How does that work? Simple. Arab simply refers to their ancestry. Israeli means they're citizens of Israel, where they live. And Christian? Kind of self-explanatory. So yes, Arab-Israeli Christians, who are Anglicans to boot.
In the first half of the show, we spoke with Reverend Susan Lukens in Jerusalem. Her life took an unexpected turn after a family tragedy set her feet on a whole new path. She learned about the journey of faith, humor as God reminding us there is joy to be had, and of learning humility as you quietly push for change. Do those ideas resonate with you? We asked a group of listeners to share their thoughts and feelings after hearing the interview. Chip Oscarson is a father of four and teaches literature and film at BYU. Barbara Lipinski is a wife, mom to two delightful kids, an entrepreneur, cyclist, traveler, and food enthusiast. Roger Hoffman is a songwriter and a peanut butter addict. Sue Bergen is a life coach and recovering perfectionist. She's famous for her organic grape juice made from her own vines. I have an idea. Why don't we start where she started with her widowhood and uh, what that implied and how it affected her life. When she spoke about getting widowed and that how the tragedy in her life was what brought her back to God. Actually, I teared up when I was listening to that because I'm I'm so scared of tragedies. Like I don't want them in my life. In fact, when I when I pray, I have these little caveats at the end of my prayers. I say, "Please bless me with humility and patience, but not in a way that's going to make me feel bad. <laughs> but not in a way that's going to be hard for me." <laughs> so, so I when I thought about her saying, uh, she said, um, "Suffering allows for a rebirth," and that this intense tragedy brought her back to prayer. It really hit me because I thought, I, you know, I'm I'm so scared of the things that are going to help me grow. And I think that's human nature to to look at things that that terrify us and say, I don't want that. And even though I, even though you look back at things at the end and say, I grew so much because of that, you, they're just so hard to go through. You don't you we, I dread them. It's like faith is is the antithesis of control. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and so it's our, our faith grows when we learn to you know, to give up a certain amount of control, a certain amount of understanding, a certain amount of um, ability to kind of steer events ourselves. I agree with you. That's one of the hardest things for me too. I had a similar experience to her in that I didn't lose a husband, but I never found one and really wanted one and children. Um, And I went through quite a dark period in my late 30s as those possibilities were dissolving. Um, just wondering, you know, where are you, God? Do you not love me? Everybody else has this, so you must think I don't deserve it. You know, these kinds of things. And, and it's I'm, – I'm saying those things in a way um, that is sort of diminishing them, but they were deep. They were, they were tough. And it did challenge my faith. It did make me wonder if God had withdrawn from me for quite a while. And it also renewed my faith eventually. As I worked through that, as I reexamined my ideas about God, as I reexamined the ideas of deserving and worthy and um it it was I, I had a rebirth, like she said. I was reborn with a much deeper faith, a much deeper, more mature sense of what life is really about. It's about love. And however you learn that is what's essential. And it doesn't have to be learned through marriage and children. What motivated you to persist? To persist with God, you mean? Um, You know what? I didn't. God courted me. And 
I finally gave in (laughs) (laughs) with tiny little graces that I started to recognize. It took me a while, and it took other people telling me, don't you see this over here? What about this? Don't you think maybe God's in that? No, I don't. (laughs) But eventually I did. In in listening to her uh, really remarkable stories of her life, it really struck me how uh, oriented she is to other people, and and how much uh, of her faith um, is based in her interaction with other people. Yes, absolutely. She talks about the fact that she has quiet time in the morning, but that the I can't say the real beauty of her life was that when she goes into serving other people, that she feels this tremendous thing. And I think the connection with the three ladies. Uh, at the end of her Eucharist, uh, they were pointing at her collar and they were all excited. Those kinds of connections are are the epitome of religion. And it was beautifully said. I really connected with the story that she told about the woman on the airplane because that's something where I feel like we, we come across people in need like that all the time. And how often do we say, not my business or I don't want to offend or but but she she just stepped in there and said I can help I can do this and it turned into this beautiful experience for her that she might have otherwise missed had she perhaps not taken the opportunity to do that and step out of her comfort zone well and there can be a real tension too in some of the cultures that that we live in um you know we we want to value self-sufficiency and independence these are these are things that we we think are good things, but that in a sense deprives other people of these kinds of opportunities. And I think of, of times in my own life where I haven't let people help me um, because I, it's embarrassing or I, I'm prideful or, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what else. But it's um, – if, if everyone has that kind of attitude, then it, it leads to a kind of insularity, right? Mm-hmm. I was struck by her use of the word shunning of her gender and how humble and – not sure what the right word is, but she just accepts it and moves on. And in my personal life, I have felt that um, shunning of gender in various situations. And I'm I'm not so um, accepting or so humble about it, maybe. And I, it just brings up for me the dilemma that I think a lot of us have often of when we see things that don't feel right or aren't right according to our way of seeing things. You know, how much do we um, be activists about it? How much do we hold back and uh, let things unfold uh, natu- more naturally without injecting ourselves? It's a balance. Um, I was really interested to hear her, how she does it. Um, I think that would be very difficult for me mm-hmm. to uh, have that priest ordination and not be allowed to use it or to um, express it. She, she's uh, a lot more graceful about it than I think I would be. <laughs> she has a wonderful pragmatism. She says, this is how it is. I'm not going to stand up with a billboard or a placard and say, this is terrible. I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to meet with these people. I'm going to do it and change them that way. Well, and since she's the only one, I mean, you really can't change those kinds of things without without others, without True. a community effort. And so I think, I think it was a, it's a wise, a wise approach. Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought one thing that she said that was interesting to me is she said you can, you know, if something like this happens, you can leave, you, you know, storm out, or mm-hmm. you can um, just, or I, th- I think she had three things, but the other thing that stood out was she says you can stay and accept that you might not have all the answers. Right. I like that a lot. Yeah. That kind of patience is, I think, really difficult, though. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is really where, um, I mean, for me, you know, th- having a faith in in something that that is not present is what helps to kind of bridge those those moments. But um, but but I, I I sympathize with the um, you know with this idea of struggling and and not knowing that that answer of you know. Is it best to simply suffer? <laughs> and there's a virtue in suffering that I, you know, again, I don't know that we always value, because we we tend to to value more this kind of standing up and and taking action at any cost, and 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 that sometimes is absolutely the right thing. There's big changes that never would have happened in our society if people hadn't been willing to to kind of lay themselves out that way. Sometimes people of you know of faith. I, you know, I think of you know someone like. Martin Luther King or, you know, a lot of the um, different types of movements that have been born out of faith. And it's um, it was precisely – people criticize them actually, right? If you're Christians, why don't you just basically accept things and, and, and learn your place? And it's interesting how it um, – having faith sometimes compels to action and sometimes compels to patience. And there's virtue in, in both. I guess a lot of wisdom involved in knowing when <laughs> which is yes, required. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Chip, you mentioned something about not knowing all the answers. Uh, she referred to the gray areas of theology, you know, being willing to accept the fact that, gosh, I don't have an answer there. I don't know anybody who does, but this is really fascinating. Let's think about it, you know. Very, very positive attitude. And and also that there's no right way to interpret any particular scripture. She's yes. In that same section, she said that. And I love that because it empowers us, empowers me, and I need empowering. I sometimes feel um, a little like I uh, absorb authority too much or I, you know, and that I need my own inner authority. And I love it when I get permission <laughs> from others <laughs> to, to uh you know, seek for my own interpretation um, and my own relationship with God and what insights come to me from that relationship. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Reverend Susan Lukens. Now back to the conversation. I value too, though, and insofar that she keeps making this connection about that we find God in community. I mean, she tar- articulates this in different ways. You know, it, your, your point, so I think, is is really good that um, because community presumes difference as well. I mean, we think about community as, as being one of sameness, but she gives us lots of good examples of how her community actually um, embraces difference and and this willingness to, um, to accept difference, um, I think, is – uh, is a really powerful idea that you know something that's different than the way I think doesn't have to threaten me, um, but it's something that can open me up to new possibilities and I can learn from. And again, you know what what incredible patience it takes to to really do that to not feel threatened when you encounter someone that thinks differently or lives differently. And there's a you know a tendency that I feel sometimes to judge, and I really have to work against that. Uh, and I found. You know, those times when I've been able to do that and not go on the defensive, 
have, have been some really powerful learning experiences for me. I think about experiences I've had with my students who have pushed back on on something that we've talked about or dealt with in, in class in my work as a teacher, that these have been some of the greatest moments for me um, as, a, as a student myself then. I This reminds me of an experience I had as a hospice chaplain where I met over 10 years, hundreds of people of different uh, beliefs. And one of them, I, I remember him very well, a young man um, who was an atheist. I think he might have been the first patient client I encountered who was an atheist. And of course, my chaplain training is to not be judgmental, to be open to the values and belief system of other people, however they present it. And um, I opening up to his thoughts and ideas was wonderful for me. It it helped me see that there is value in every perspective and that atheism I came to see as, for some people, as a spiritual perspective. Um, just a fine young man with great compassion and a, a wonderful moral compass and uh, it just gave me a whole different view. And I think that one of the points that she made several times is to get to that place where you can see someone else's point of view. One of the keys is humility and not not thinking that my, my perspective is the only correct perspective right. to be able to open up and say – I'm, I can learn. I can learn from you. you know, even if we see differently, I can learn. And she made the point of saying that both humility and patience are gifts from God that we can work to cultivate. I think humility is the key that I would relate to there because uh, I come at it. I put my thoughts out. I think these are really important to me, you know, and then somebody mm-hmm. comes back with something that potentially damages my thoughts, you know, <laughs> and what am I going to do? But but as you say, Chip, when you when you – Humble yourself and be patient and open up. It's a kind of an overcoming, you know, of the this natural inclination to do that. Uh, marvelous things can happen. Well, you know, it, it requires one to, to deal with a sense of vulnerability, right? And when you feel vulnerable, I think that's when you tend to be more defensive and maybe more judgmental. And so her comment about how important it was that she knew, um, you know, and this – that Jesus, you know, laughs with her and cries with her, right? That I mean, it's a very personal conception of of God, right? A very um, intimate, you know, relationship. That it, it seems like that's where um, a lot of her confidence then comes from. That she she doesn't feel so so threatened, and that's a um, the ability to to find to find God. That's that's something that really. Um, uh, stood out to me in, in her descriptions, the, that she finds it both through ritual, through prayer, through meditation, through interaction with others. It's an interesting question of, you know, what does it take to find God in our lives, especially when there's so many distractions? I had a, a bit of a internal reaction when she said, we always could do a better job of walking with God. I've, I consider myself a recovering perfectionist, and I thought, no, not always. We're allowed to rest sometimes and not. And I learned that in my adult life after just being a super perfectionist, trying to be good and do the right thing and follow all the rules uh, and improve every day. And I've learned that that is not possible and not wise. And uh, I, I think she was saying probably something a little differently, different than what I'm saying, but – 
it's okay to not improve every single day. I just have to say that. Sometimes you just hold on for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think there's a lot of, of value in in slowing down in our lives a, a lot of times. And, and some of the, the kinds of practices that she was talking about seems like it, it does that for her. And maybe that's actually what you're talking about, Sue, right? Is that not thinking about walking with God as – um, as a constant kind of improving myself in reaching some goal that I've set for myself or disciplining myself. But for me, I think about how valuable the time uh, that I spend out in the, the mountains near where I live, um, that we have a lot of wonderful trails and I'm blessed to, to be able to, you know, to get out on a regular basis. And I, I like to be able to, to clear my mind. And sometimes it, it comes in the form of a, of a prayer, something I'm struggling with or, or thinking about. And sometimes it is a um, – I don't know that I'm a good meditator. I wish I was a, a better meditator in a lot of ways. And maybe this is a form of meditation, but I just try and, and clear my mind and let my thoughts go where they will. And, um, and every now and again, I, I feel like there's some kind of uh, – of, of insight, a, a feeling of, I mean, it, it sounds cliche to feel, you know, kind of connected in these sorts of, of moments, but I think it's precisely because I'm not checking my phone or, um, you know, running off to the next meeting or that, you know, that, and, and, and it gives that kind of rest that I think you're alluding to that um, that's restorative. Um, and it can come in the smallest things. Unpredictable I, uh, too. I was quite ill for a few weeks and couldn't get outside into nature, which is one of the ways I recharge. But there was this little little spider in my bathroom. <laughs> and I decided to watch this spider over a period of days and his movements. And uh, I one day I just got a, a chair and got up on the on the counter and put my face right next to this spider. He was on the move and it's like I want he had the most amazing movements and these little eyes I could see and I just to me God was in that and I I finally got tired of him being in my house and so I picked him up and put him outside with a cup and they're just that connected me to God. I can't say a spider's ever connected me to God. Yeah, but believe it or not, it did. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for opening me up to that possibility. I, I had a similar experience. I mean, you talk about the unexpected source of it with the Jackson Pollock, you know, drip painting once upon a time. And, you know, it was a similar kind of thing. It was, a, it was in the middle of an art class. We'd been looking at a lot of art. And I don't know why that piece of art at that time um, – kind of struck me in that similar kind of way where there was something incredibly profound uh, that I, I came to understand more about myself than about abstract expressionism, right? <laughs> um, in that there was this way of – and I credit in part the teacher that I had at the time who, who was trying to teach us to, to see – to let the artwork be – you know, not to try to impose too much on um, of, of myself on it, but but to try to really understand what it was saying, and um, and it became this kind of expression of charity, of understanding of what charity you know meant. This understanding, this ability to kind of see through the eyes of others. Art can can do that for me. Kind of what you're describing with the spider. You mean empathy with this artist, trying to relate to what he was communicating, Jackson, or? Or I, I'm not even sure that, yeah, I guess in, in part trying to, to think through Jackson Pollock's eyes in a sense, but without necessarily a sense of his biography or um, what he might be was, was thinking specifically when he was putting this piece of artwork together, but understanding that this, this piece of artwork was not representational. And that's what I was struggling with. I wanted, what is it? You know, I, I could do that myself kind of thing. But to understand that it, 
that it didn't I, I didn't have to find or check off those boxes. Yeah. It was a way of me trying to control that that piece of art. And so that ability to see the beauty in the spider I, I see as an interesting you know, parallel to that or to, to listen to people's stories and to, uh, to be inspired by them and kind of uplifted by them without me needing to put them in some kind of box. Yeah, and see God in all of it. Yeah. And I like how she asked at one point, how do you know that God is there? And then she talked about her experiences serving. And I think we come back to that. I think that and, – and I think sometimes we get too isolated in our own lives and look inside so much and don't see the opportunities that we have to help each other. I remember one time I was driving down the street late for somewhere and was so busy and I looked out the side of my window and I saw a dad taking a picture of a of a of, of their son and, and the mother together and, and clear as anything I had the thought stop and take the picture of the whole family and I talked myself out of it. I said that's ridiculous. They don't know me. They're going to think I'm crazy. I'm just going to keep going. So I kept going. And then clear as anything, go back and take their picture. So I said, okay. So I turned around, pulled over, and I said, excuse me, <laughs> don't think I'm crazy, but would you like me to take a picture of your whole family? And they just stopped and looked at me and said, we would love that. I said, okay, cheese, they get together, say cheese, took the picture and drove off. I have no idea why I felt like I needed to do that, why I felt like God was telling me that I needed to do that. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know anything about their story. But I remember leaving and thinking, I need to listen more because I think so many times I shut out ideas to help someone. I heard someone told me once, never stifle a thought to do a kind deed. Never never stifle a kind thought that you have about someone. Share it. Go out, go, Get outside of yourself and get out and help people. And that's, I like that because that's, she said that's how she knows that God is there. I remember Sue said that God is always there. Jesus is there, but I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, people go through significant times in their lives when for whatever reason they can't align themselves because of a tragedy or a misunderstanding mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And uh, – but at a certain point, because God is always there, he is always helping and influencing and feeling – kind of sneaking in little feelings of love and stuff into your life that you can turn around and say – yeah, I'm here. Yeah. She said something that was really striking to me. She said that we are all replaceable. Mm-hmm. And um, well, on the one hand, this seems to, to demean, um, in a sense, what it means to be human, to be individual and things like that. There's also something very liberating in, in that kind of recognition that uh, – and she's speaking specifically, I think, about her, you know, her work – her professional work. And I don't know, there's an interesting tension in that statement that I find between that every individual is is unique, that I think every um, individual is, is loved of God in a unique way, is loved um, most often by by parents, by uh, by people that, that stand close to that person. But at the same at the same time we, we tend to think of ourselves as irreplaceable in in a lot of the things that we do. And maybe that leads to the kind of perfectionism that that you were alluding to uh, earlier, Sue. That um, that we think that everything has to be a certain way, uh, and maybe another way of exerting control over ourselves and our lives, and instead of recognizing that actually I can invite other people in. Yeah, other people, other ideas, other thoughts about God. We don't. We we have much to learn. That's our time for today. 
Thanks to our panelists and especially to Reverend Susan Lukens for sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation and welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime. Email ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon right here in Good Faith.